it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today, we have episode 301. Today, we are going to answer three fantastic listener questions we got. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and dive right in. So we got first question. This is a two-parter. So first-time caller, new listener, very funny. Love the podcast and all the information you're giving the public on investing. Question number one, should I trust the financial websites, Yahoo Financial, or whichever you prefer, when it comes to figuring out ratios like P.E. ratio, earnings per share, EPS, market cap, etc., or should I figure it out myself? I appreciate you giving the formulas to figure out these on my own, but now I'm paranoid and wonder if I should be trusting these websites, LOL. So great question, and I guess what are your thoughts on this? It is a great question, and thanks for writing in, or I guess calling in this case. Yeah. <laughs> I think it depends on what you're trying to do. So I guess if I was an investor and I didn't, I was looking at what the metrics were on the website, but I didn't really know what they meant. That would be a problem to me. Mm. Like, I feel like the value in knowing how to calculate something is that you understand what it means. Mm -hmm. I mean, I hate to call it like being in school again, but unless you've kind of like done the homework, sometimes that's the only way you know how to solve a math problem is because you've done it before. So if you don't necessarily know how to calculate a price to earnings ratio, a PE ratio, for example, then are you really going to understand the difference between a 15 or a 20 PE? I don't know. It's That's kind of the way I look at it. Do you have a different way? No, I think the first thing is you need to figure out what's inside the recipe, if you will. When you're making food, you have to kind of decipher what's in the recipe and are there things in there that I can or can't eat? So for example, I'm a type two diabetic, so I need to avoid carbs and sugar. So whenever I pick up a something to make bacon, for example, I look at the back of the label to make sure that there's nothing in there that I can't eat because sometimes it may be maple bacon and they put a lot of sugar in there and then I can't eat it. So I guess really understanding what it is you're cooking with I think is the first thing. So really understanding what a PE ratio is and how to determine it. Big reason why we spend a lot of time talking about those metrics and kind of going over them so people understand how to calculate them so that they can do it for themselves. Because the 
a lot of the times you don't see the PE ratio in a company's 10K. That's more something that's either calculated on your own or it's something that they'll see on the financial websites like Yahoo Financial or Stratosphere. I guess as far as like trusting them, I have found that the majority of them are really good and pretty consistent on earnings per share, PE ratio, market cap. I think those are pretty generic. I don't think you'll see a whole lot of variation between those. The one that really trips a lot of people up is return on invested capital. And we've talked about that a lot. But that one, if you look at five different financial websites, you'll see five different numbers. And it's all because they all calculate it differently. And there's a lot of different ways to do it. So that one in particular, I always try to calculate it myself. Andrew and I have created this great spreadsheet that has a calculator that we can do it ourselves that way. And it works really, really well. And so that's something that I prefer to do that. But the PE ratio, I'm perfectly fine unless it seems are really, really out of whack for the financial website. But I found that those are pretty consistent. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. The PE actually is tricky because when, you can have a forward PE or right. a trailing PE. A lot of websites do differentiate between the two though. Mm-hmm. So I think seeking alpha, for they example, I think yeah. they show what the forward PE is. Right. And all that's telling you is what the analysts think the earnings will be versus what the earnings actually are. Right. So you, you do have to be cognizant of that. But to Dave's point, I completely agree that I wouldn't worry about trusting websites like this as long as they're a reputable one that you're comfortable with. Because mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of the numbers are not subjective. I mean, ROIC is one that is, but mm-hmm. the rest of them are pretty basic and you'll find that they're pretty consistent. So as far as trusting them, I would have no problem trusting them. Right. Yeah. For me too. I think one of the things to also keep in mind when you're thinking about something like a ratio, for example, I wouldn't get too wrapped up in if Pepsi is trading at a 15 PE versus a 17 PE. You know, if you see 15 on one website and a 17 on another, I wouldn't get too excited about that because if you're making an investment decision based on one website saying it's lower than the other, then I think you need to probably think through your process a little bit more because that little variation is not going to make that big of a difference in the grand scheme of things. And there's a whole lot of other things you need to think about before you use something like that to just make an investment decision. If you're using it for a screener, you know, trying to find investment ideas, you know, that's again, I guess I wouldn't get too excited if it's a 28 PE versus a 30. If it's a 28 versus a 45, okay then I may need to sit down and figure this out. But if it's a couple numbers off, I wouldn't get too excited. Price to free cash flow, any of those numbers, I don't think I would get too excited about that. More about comparing that to the actual financials. And then if you really are digging in, then you can start kind of putting the numbers together yourself. I guess that's one of the ways I try to kind of work around that, I guess. Yep, well said. What's the best way to steward your wealth? Looking to find great businesses with a margin of safety? My advice, Value Spotlight at valuespotlight.com. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? 
Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. All right, so let's move on to the next question. So we have question number two. I have read uh, slash listened through Audible, The Intelligent Investor. I will definitely have to read it a few more times to understand it more. It was a great first book to read on investing. Can you give me a list of books to read next in order of basic slash intermediate slash advanced level of understanding? I bought Andrew's 7-7 book also, which was a great read as well. If you've answered these questions in the past episodes, then I apologize. I recently started listening and I'm only on March of 2023 episodes. Keep up the great work. Apologies accepted and no problem. We're happy to answer this question again. (laughs) I'm going to answer this question a little bit differently because I feel like I've been saying the same thing for five years. I'm going to switch it up because it's not, you get different nuggets from different books. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not like a secret recipe of five books will make you a great investor. It's really a, like learning a language. It's a long-term game. So, I mean, ideally you'd read more than just five over your investing career. Right. So I guess I'll start with one kind of more on the beginner side. I really like should make this into a genre one day like you go to the bookstore and you have romance you have horror and then you have investing i don't know how you would call it but just like whenever they interview big groups of investors so william green did this in his book there's been a ton of different books like this but just getting people who sit down with other investors and asking them hey what did you do that worked really well right so i'm going to pull one out of the out of my obscure 
Let me dust it off here. <laughs> the basement of investing tomes. This one's called Investment Gurus by Peter Tannis, and it was published in 1997. But to me, that feels like the 80s. So <laughs> it's really great. It's just another one of those books where you get insights from a lot of different investors who have done well, and you can see where there's places where people have similar strategies. Like a lot of successful investors will hold a stock for a very long time. Mm -hmm. So you get a lot of similarities, but then you also start to see how there's a lot of different ways to beat the market too. And I think by getting a variety of viewpoints, I think that's great for a beginner. And a lot of times when it's an interview format like this, it can be beginner enough because it's almost like listening to a podcast. If there's going to be complex topics, they usually warm the audience into it. And I liked Investment Gurus because it had a lot of great nuggets from a lot of really good investors. That's awesome. I've not read that book, so I'm going to put that on my list of books to read. So that's cool. If you can find it, the 1997 (laughs) edition, good luck. Well, I know somebody who has it that I can borrow it from. (laughs) Hint, hint. I'm going to bring it tomorrow. Uh, Number one for me is going to be Psychology of Money. And this is from Morgan Housel. And I think this is a great book that really gets you started with the whole idea of investing and how you can think about money and how to start budgeting, how to start investing, and just kind of think through really what it is, what you want your end goal to be when you start investing and you know beyond just, I want to make more money and really kind of putting some thought into what your plan is going to be and how you want to start executing on that plan. And Morgan has a really great, easy way of writing. He's one of the masters of intertwining stories among dropping lots of nuggets of knowledge and information. And it's such an easy book to read. And I've read it several times and I have it all marked up. It's one of the few books that I actually did mark up. I always feel like that's kind of sacrilege, but I'm from a different era. So I think it's a great first book to start as a beginner. I agree. Yeah. And there's a lot of great personal finance stuff in there too. Yeah. So another one that I just started picking up and reading. So I've only read like two or three chapters. So take that for what it's worth. But it seems good so far. It's called Market Masters by Robin Spizzoli. And it's actually interviews with Canada's top investors. So yeah, it's really interesting. I read a couple about kind of like GARP, which is growth Mm -hmm. at a reasonable price. And I thought those guys are really brilliant. And so it's a good book so far. And I would recommend picking it up. And it's also more on that beginner side. But it's advanced enough to keep me interested. So that's a lot of books actually are like that still. So Mm -hmm. um, that's the great thing about reading about investing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That that sounds like a great book. Again, another one I have not read, but hint, 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 wink, wink. I know who somebody I could borrow it from. I'll take extra notes then on these copies. Okay. I I scribble all over mine. (laughs) The next one I have is uh, Richer, Wiser, and Happier. And this is from William Green. We've been lucky enough to have William on our show a couple of times. And Brilliant guy, fantastic writer, and he interviewed some of the top investors in history and just kind of shares all of their insights. Monish Babrai, Charlie Munger, Joel Greenblatt, Tom Gaynor, just on and on and on. The Illuminati, if you will, of investing. He's been lucky enough to share rooms with and talk to them about their ideas and how they improved. And it doesn't just talk about, you know, hey, you need to go out and find these kinds of 
companies to invest. It's it's about a philosophy of investing and how you can kind of balance that with having a life and just that money is not the ultimate driver of happiness. And because some of these people are the wealthiest people in the world and that didn't make them happy. It was other things in their lives that made them happy. And he just has a great way of, again, kind of sprinkling in all these great stories among all this wisdom that he's dropping. And it's a really good book for kind of getting your psychology of how you want to start investing and keeping a guide of where you want to go, just like Morgan Housel's book. And it's more about the psychology of investing as opposed to the nuts and bolts of, you know, here, do this and here, do that. And it's just great to hear guys like Monish Prabhai talk about their story and, you know, how they got where they are. It's fantastic. Oh, yeah. I guess I'll shout out another guy we've had on our show before, uh, Vitaly Katzenelson. He has a book called The Little Book of Sideways Markets. Mm-hmm. And that one's really great. I mean, so many of the little books in that little book series are oh, yeah. really good reads. This one in particular, I wouldn't say it's necessarily not for beginners because there's a lot of good chapters in there that I feel like anybody could read, whether mm-hmm. you have a background in this or not. But there are this chapter I have it marked up. It's like page starting on page 46. They have Vitaly breaks down this, the basics of DCFs mm-hmm. and explains it in a really thoughtful and easy way. I know financial formulas can be really intimidating, especially a DCF, mm-hmm. but he used a story with a donkey or something like that. And it, it really helped to get me around the concept of DCFs for the very first time. It does take a while to eventually master that, but it Mm. was definitely a good intro into DCFs. It's a fantastic book and he's a wonderful, wonderful writer. Big fan of Vitelli's. My third book, I chose The Dondo Investors. I've recommended this book before, but I really like, it's written by Monish Prabhai and I really like the way that Monish writes the book and the way that he presents the material in there. And he does start to kind of delve into financial concepts But he does it in a way that he explains it using more abstract ideas and kind of condensing everything to make it more logical. And so instead of it being a textbook and going, you know, here, do this and do this and do this, like an accounting book, he more uses stories of different companies and different situations and kind of weaves it all into an idea of this is how you do it. And it's the, you know, the main gist of the book is trying to find companies that you can invest in that you have a lot of potential to make money, but if it doesn't go well, because not all investments will go well, you don't lose that much. And so the phrase in the book is heads I win, tails I don't lose that much. And that's kind of the basic theme throughout the book. And it's a really easy read, just like the other two that I mentioned. And it doesn't bog you down with a whole lot of numbers, but it does start kind of introducing these concepts of finance and how that really works in the investing world. And I think it's a fantastic, really easy intro, kind of intermediate book to get into the heavy stuff. Nice. The next one, a book called More Than You Know by Michael Mobison. And a book like this can almost open up a whole entire world to you because then you start to see other kind of bigger picture ways that you can approach investing. So I don't want to minimize what's in there because there's so many different profound ideas that Mobison's thrown in this book. But just as an example, the idea of how luck can play a role with investing. Dave, you you wrote a great post about this recently on the blog. Just this whole luck versus skill. So the game of baseball, me and Dave are big fans of baseball, has a lot more luck in it than the game of basketball, which I'm also a big fan of. 
mm-hmm. where a guy's going to make a jump shot most of the time, whereas a baseball can bounce anywhere. Mm-hmm. And so with investing and just the business world, even in general, you get a lot of that randomness too. And so to be a good investor over a long period of time, you have to understand how to deal with that reality of the stock market mm-hmm. and to kind of take those next level thoughts of how can I behaviorally become more aware of myself and my biases and how I think and how can I take control of that and become a better investor. I mean, there's a whole other side of, I guess you call it what, like behavioral psychology Yeah, that you can really go down that path, but it's very, very helpful because if you can get your emotions in check, if you can remove all of the biases that all of us have, you're just going to become a better investor. And this book is a great way to, to start to think in that way. Mm-hmm. I love that book. And Mobison is one of the best at explaining those concepts and putting it in words that you know us mere mortals can understand. And he just has a great teaching style. He's just very clear on how he explains things. Big fan. And yeah, the whole luck and skill thing is something that I think a lot of people haven't really thought deeply about and Michael has and he shares all those ideas with it and it can definitely make you a better investor. So yeah, big fan. I don't know if anybody's thought as deeply as he has. No, I know. <laughs> I know I haven't. <laughs> I know I haven't. So my next book is going to be going back to the little book series. And this is the little book evaluation. And this is by one of my favorites, uh, Professor Oswald Demoterin. And this is probably, I think, one of the best books introducing the whole concept of valuing a company. And when we talk about valuing a company, we're not talking about what is what price it's selling for. We're trying to determine what is the company worth. It's like buying a car. You have to figure out what is a stock, what is Pepsi or Coca-Cola worth before we invest in it. And he is, I think, he, well, he's, he's the dean of valuation. He's taught it for many, many, many years. And he's just very clear, very concise, and he has a great way of putting complicated topics in a way that everybody can understand them. And this book in particular, I think it does a really, really good job of explaining a complicated process like a discounted cash flow model or any other more intricate finance concepts and explaining them in a way that I think is a really good introduction before you get into heavier books that really focus on the whole valuation concept because it can be a pretty heavy subject once you really dig into it. Oh, yeah. So what's your last book? I mean, I have to pick one. No, you don't. I guess the ultimate would be security analysis, Mm. which just thinking about it, I should probably do a refresh on. But that was a book by Benjamin Graham and David Dodd, who was his assistant at Columbia. Yeah. Yeah, Columbia. And the thing is massive. It's Mm. like 800 pages. But it's basically the foundation of, to your point, Dave, when we invest, we try to figure out what a business is worth. And it's really worth all the future cash it generates. Mm. But to actually quantify what that means in a world that's so complex and always moving is a really hard thing to do. But security analysis can help you start to understand some of those concepts mm-hmm. and but what's tough is like it's so much more than just numbers right i mean right. it's not just oh coca-cola made 10 million in profit last year so it's worth this it's like well coca-cola has to compete against pepsi but they also mm-hmm. have to compete against the next innovator like stevia for example you know there's just so many parts of investing in a stock that it can somewhat be overwhelming but Security analysis is like a literal textbook 
And if you drop it on your desk, it's going to make everything on your desk vibrate. Right. <laughs> it is like a little textbook, but it's been so educational for so many people. But it does feel very advanced because mm-hmm. it is worthy and was written a long time ago. Yeah. And there's a yeah. lot in there. But yeah. I would recommend at least giving it a try. Yeah, me too. And if nothing else, it serves as a weapon too. So it's <laughs> because it's so heavy. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but yeah, I agree. It's, it's probably one of the deepest books there is that I've read about finance. And it's, you know, there's no sugarcoating it. It's, you know, there's a lot of advanced topics in there and it definitely, you need to work through it. It's not something you're going to sit down and read on a Sunday afternoon and, you know, just kind of for a light reading. It's something you got to sit down and work through. Yeah, for sure. I guess my last book is kind of on the evaluation train, if you will, and that's called Expectations Investing. And this is a book written by Michael Movison. And I think one of the better books on valuation that I've read, and he really talks about the way that you can use a discounted cash flow model, but in reverse, using the one thing that we all know for sure is a hard, fast number, and that's the actual price that the company is selling for in the market. And then working backwards from that to determine what's embedded in that price. Like what are investors, what is the company, what are analysts, what are all the people expecting the company to grow the cash flows at this level or the revenues at this level or what are their inputs are really driving the price in the stock market. And it's a complex topic, but the way he describes it, he has several different levels of things that he walks you through. And once you understand it, it's all like, duh. But when you just think about sitting down to think about it from without understanding what it is he's working through, it seems a little daunting. But once you read through the book, it's very laid out very well and quite easy to read. And it's very logical as well. And I've been a big fan of it. I've read it three or four times now. Yeah, it's good. I like it. I like the thinking of valuation as a range of outcomes. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of the things as you get more advanced, once you actually learn how to value a company, it can be hard because you think that your estimate is what the future is. Mm-hmm. But actually, the company could do a lot better or a lot worse than everybody thinks because of, you know, pick outside event that happens that affects mm-hmm. businesses. And so he talks about instead of just doing one think of a range. And I think that's so brilliant. Yeah, I totally agree. All right. That's our list of books that can help get you started from beginner to more advanced. And it's an endless subject and there's, That's just scratching the surface of things that if you want more, come back and ask us and we'll give you some more. There you go. Once you get through all those and send us a book report. All right. So let's move on to the next question. So we have, hello from the way too hot right now, Eastern Europe. I'm a big fan of your podcast and hope to have the privilege to keep on listening to you guys for many new episodes. My dilemma is as follows. I have recently earned a big sum of money, big at least for me. It's a six figure number sum. I plan to invest it in the stock market, but I'm not sure how to go about it. I know time in the market beats timing the market, so going all in might seem the best way out. On the other hand, dollar cost averaging has the advantage of avoiding a very bad moment to buy in bulk and almost seems better for my emotional well-being. I could spread the purchase out over a number of years and months, but I would have to find a mechanism for keeping the yet uninvested money safe from inflation. What's your take on this? Thank you and keep up the great work, George. So Andrew, you want to go ahead and take George's great question here? This is a controversial thing. And that's one of those weird things that money nerds will fight about for whatever reason. But it's it can have a big impact on your results, especially if you're talking about six figures. So I think it's worth discussing. I would say something that maybe is not even talked about when this discussion starts is how are you investing it? 
Are you talking about just throwing it in an index fund, like the S&P 500, or are you talking about picking individual stocks? Because to me, that answer is different. Also, how long are you investing it? Are you investing it for 10 years, or are you investing it for 30 years? Because that also makes an impact as well. I know all the academic studies, or I don't know if you call them academic, but a lot of the studies that look back at history will talk about how time in the market does beat timing the market in the context of investing a lump sum versus spreading it out over time. So it really depends on what your time frame is and what you're investing in. So there's a lot of different possibilities. So I guess let's talk about the lump sum idea. Like Andrew said, there are studies that show pros and cons for each side of the equation. If you're going to do lump sum investing, here's why I guess I would struggle with doing that is number one, lump sum investing index funds or individual stocks? Oh, well, I guess if I was going to do index funds, I would probably be more way more comfortable to just throw all of it in an index fund. I mean, I, that's how I would approach it if I was doing index funds. If I'm doing individual stocks, that to me is a whole different can of worms. I just think it would be much harder to do. And the reason why I feel like the stock market in a lump sum, like an S&P 500 lump sum, would be easier because the market will go, we'll see a lot of volatility. But if you span out over a longer period of time, 10 to 30 years, for example, you'll see the market go up over that longer period of time. So even if you invest in an air quote bad time and maybe the stock market is really down, that's actually a good thing because then it's going to rebound and you'll get better returns. If the stock market is running really hot and it's like it was a few years ago, for example, then you may lose some in the shorter term, but it will return and do better over a longer period of time. So I guess I would be more comfortable with that. If we start talking about doing individual stocks, then I think that's kind of a whole different can of worms. I guess, what are your thoughts on the lump sum in an S&P 500 kind of thing? Yeah, depends on how long we're talking. Mm -hmm. If you're 55 and you're retiring at 65, you only have 10 years, then putting a lump sum into the S&P in 1999 would have been a terrible idea because in 2009, you're trying to retire and your portfolio is way, way down. Well, think about the two things you encountered in there. So you got the dot-com bust and you also had the great financial crisis in both of those periods. So that would be really tragic. Yes. But the overwhelming majority of 20-year periods, your returns are fine. So might as well let it ride if you're talking about 20 years or more. Right. But I understand the emotional uncertainty and and how that can be hard because over a 12-month period, you can have such a fluctuation in the stock market and it does feel better to spread it out over, let's say, 12 months. That way you don't have one position that you're staring at in your brokerage account that's either up a lot or down, or a, down lot. a lot. <laughs> Emotionally, yeah, it does feel better. But 20 years away, 30 years away, and if most of your retirement's going to be in an S&P anyway, you're kind of ride or die with the S&P as it is. So right. I understand like, the historical studies that say time in the market's better than timing the market. Mm-hmm. But the longer your time period, I think the easier that becomes. So what about individual stocks? See, individual stocks, for me, I would have to space it out. I just couldn't. First of all, I wouldn't feel comfortable. I'm not Warren Buffett. I wouldn't feel comfortable putting half of my money in one stock. I could not sleep at night doing that. I wouldn't be able to. So for me, 
I would have to space it out. Now, whether I do it over you know a year or whether I do it over two years or however long, and simply for the fact of, that trying to find 10 great ideas or 20 great ideas all in one shot, I think would be really, really, really hard. I know that I couldn't do it. Could I find 20 companies that maybe I want to invest in? Sure, absolutely. I got a list of those right now, but would I want to invest in those right now? Probably not. And so I guess for me, I would have to space it out, figuring out whether I want to have 10% positions or 5% positions. All those things would kind of play into that decision of how long I want to spread it out. And maybe, you know, throwing in a hypothetical too, let's say that the market is going through a downturn why I'm investing this, then I may actually accelerate some of that because that's when I could find companies that are selling for a discount. You know, Google, Microsoft are all of a sudden on sale. Why not take advantage of that while you can? Or Visa, you know, something like that. But if I'm going to look at it just as a general rule over a longer period of time, I'd want to spread it out. What about you? Yeah, same. I think the Buffett idea is really interesting because Mm -hmm. even I think he would say when he put half of his money or almost half of his money in a company. He didn't just do it because he had a bunch of money necessarily. He did it because he saw this is a crazy opportunity and I'm Mm going to swing really hard at it. Right. And he's proven that that's worked out really well for him. Yeah. And he doesn't do it every month. He doesn't do it every year. It's very rare that he loads up like that. Right. And it's just because like the prices are pretty fair. There's not huge discounts all the time mm-hmm. every once in a while when one does happen you got to take a big swing and that's what buffett did right yeah exactly and more power to him that's just not in my dna <laughs> yeah I, i'm not putting 40 percent. something sorry yeah no <laughs> no no all right and we're gonna wrap up with our last one this one's gonna be really advanced and that'll be fun for me and dave for the rest of you we'll see Hello, Dave and Andrew. Thank you guys for all the great content on the show and love the website. I'm interested to hear if you guys include operating leases in your WAC slash cost of debt calculations and your logic for or against. When I started listening to the podcast about two years ago, I wouldn't have had any idea what that sentence meant as I had no finance or business background at all. I appreciate all your guys' wisdom and enthusiasm that helped me get to this point. Seth from LA. Yeah, that's a great question. And Again, this is a little more advanced. It's a lot more advanced. So if this is something you're not familiar with, please feel free to check out our website, einvestingforbeginners.com and do some research and come back to this. You'll understand it a little bit better. All right. So I guess let's start with what is WAC or cost of debt? So I think the first thing we need to kind of describe, WAC is an acronym for Weighted Average Cost of Capital. And cost of debt is part of that calculation. And Long story short, a WAC or weighted average cost of capital is you're calculating a discount rate that you would use to value a company. You can think of it as a hurdle rate. You can think of it as discount rate. There's lots of different ways. Uh, basically, what it is, is... Can we talk about the hurdle rate? Because I think if you're someone who hasn't been around a while, you might mm-hmm. not know what's that referring to. And to me... The whack for most companies, at least the ones I look at, the mature companies, mm-hmm. they're not actually raising capital. Right. So it, it's purely a hurdle rate for mm-hmm. the investor in that. It's more of an opportunity cost of mm-hmm. capital than it is a cost of capital. Right. So maybe talk about the hurdle rate and why that's 
such a big part of the discount rate. Okay. So the hurdle rate is to break it down as simply as I can is the return that you would want to get on your investment. So if you calculate a whack and it comes at back at nine and a half percent, if you invest in Microsoft, you want to at least to get a nine and a half percent return for you to feel like you've invested your money well. So anything a nine and a half or above return on an investment in Microsoft, you would consider a successful investment. Anything below that, you would feel like you've burned your money. And so a whack or a hurdle rate or a discount rate, those are the discount rate and the hurdle rate are really the numbers that you use to discount the cash flows that the company generates. So the reason why you do this is because of the time value of money. So a dollar today is not worth the same as it is tomorrow or two years from now or 10 years from now. And so we have to use a discount rate or a hurdle rate or the whack to determine what that value is for that dollar 10 years from now. And basically because of the buying power of the dollar or inflation, your money isn't as worth as much in 10 years as it is today. And so we want to make sure that when we invest that dollar, that we get a nine and a half percent return from now until that 10 years. Otherwise, we could have chosen other companies to get a better return on that dollar. And Andrew was talking about opportunity costs. That's really what that comes down to is the when you invest, you have the opportunity, you have choices to make. You can buy this, you can buy that, you can buy this, you can buy that. And the better return you get is the better use of your money. And so if you invest in a company that doesn't perform well and you don't get a great return in 10 years as you do the other one, for example, then that's an opportunity cost you lost. That That's 10 years that you can't get back to invest in another company. And that's why these calculations are important and why it's something you need to think about and kind of to work through. And so does that help explain it? It does. The only thing I would add is it's, it's all risk adjusted. So the more risky a stock is, the higher the discount rate. And the reason for that is, let's say you have 10 stocks that are all ultra risky investments and nine of them go bankrupt. Your last one stock needs to have a huge return for you to break even. Versus if I'm buying Microsoft, Apple, Google, Mm -hmm. like a lot more safer companies, those discount rates can be a lot less because I don't need Apple to 10x from here for me to have a good return because I'm buying steady growers. Mm-hmm. So the reason why the hurdle rate needs to be higher for more risky companies is because it's risk adjusted. You know it's a more risky company, so you attach a higher discount rate because those companies are going to need to earn more than normal because your portfolio is going to have... If it's more risky, there's more chance that it'll go bankrupt. Mm-hmm. So you keep buying companies like that. You have to have companies that return higher. Right. And then you can like... you can That's one extreme, and then you can take that all the way down to investing in bonds mm-hmm. or investing in something even safer than that. And right. then the discount rates go down. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So that's a very, very good point. One of the things about the WAC is it is a way for investors to determine how well a company invests because this is their cost of capital. And it's the capital that they use to invest is broken into two parts. Part of it is debt. And part of it is equity. And those are the two choices that management has to choose to try to generate investments that the company can 
do better than. So if Microsoft, to go back to them, if they're going to participate in a, a project or a plan to try to grow revenue, they have to do better. That investment that they spend, they need to do better than that whack or that cost of capital for it to be worthwhile for Microsoft, which in turn would be good for the investor. And if they don't do that, then that's a poor choice of using that capital. They could have given us a dividend. They could have done share buybacks or chosen another project or maybe an acquisition. So when you look at how management allocates the money that they generate from revenue, WAC is one way that you can help measure how well the company does that. And like Andrew was saying, the more mature companies generally have a lower whack or lower cost of capital. It's not always that way, but generally they will have lower cost of capital and it means that they're going to invest more efficiently. And without going into all the the nitty gritty, you can compare return on invested capital to WAC and the higher the ROIC is, in theory, the better the company invests because that's the return they get on those investments. And that's why those two components are so important to look at. And that's why I spend a lot of time calculating WAC and looking at it because it's important. And the other part of this too, and this doesn't get discussed a lot, is interest rates have a big impact on the cost of capital or the WAC because debt is generally is a cheaper way of investing versus the equity of a business. So when I'm talking about equity, I'm talking about Microsoft selling shares out in the open market. And that is more expensive for Microsoft to do than it is for them to go and borrow money to try to raise cash to use an investment. And so the interest rates, when those are really, really low, like they were a few years ago, that meant that across the board, wax or discount rates were lower in general, which means that companies could invest cheaper and they could take on more debt and have less to pay, it made them more valuable, if you will. It basically drove up equity prices. So when you saw the prices of a lot of these companies, they were very, very high and very elevated. It's because the interest rates were so low and the cost of borrowing them so low. And so there's a relationship to it. And that's why I like to use something like a WAC because it takes that into consideration. There are some people out there that when they invest, they use just a flat 10%. That's my discount rate. That's my hurdle rate. It doesn't matter where we are in the interest cycle and everything. And that's fine. And if it works for them, more power to them. But I like to use the WAC because it takes into account. It's not fine though. Well, (laughs) it's not. They're wrong. So I think they're wrong. So, and here's why I think they're wrong. It doesn't take into consideration the impact that a company, decisions a company will make to borrow more money to invest. And, you know, we're talking about Microsoft and maybe Microsoft's not necessarily the greatest example because they generate so much free cash flow that they don't really have to take on a lot of debt. They can do it and they do do it, but they do it so cheaply because they're, one of the only companies that's a triple A rated company, so they can borrow at the lowest of low. And, you know, they have such great financial strength that it's it's not apples to apples with PayPal, for example. And so if you look at PayPal, interest rates have a real big bearing on PayPal and their ability to reinvest in their business because if they don't generate enough cash flow, they're gonna have to rely on debt. 
And if they don't have as good of credit rating as Microsoft does, that means that they're going to have to borrow at higher rates, which means that that's going to cost them more money. And that means they have to invest that money better than Microsoft will. Not necessarily like range of return on capital, but it does mean that they're going to have to, there's a lot more pressure to invest well then maybe Microsoft can miss on a few things and not be as catastrophic as it could be for PayPal, for example. And that's why interest rates are important. And that's why I like to look at something like a WAC to help me determine what kind of discount rate I want to use for my cash flows because that cost of debt that uh, Seth asked about, that's critically important to a CEO's decisions. You know, when he sits down at the end of the year, he's got so much money to play with. And he's going, okay, we got these plans. We want to do this. We want to do this. And we think this is going to be the thing that's going to help PayPal grow. You got to pay for it. It's not coming. It's not going to be free. And so if you don't have the free cash flow, you have to raise the money another way. And the two choices are debt or equity. And equity is, you know, a lot of people frown on it, myself included, because it dilutes shareholders. And so interest rates have a direct impact on decisions that, CEOs make on how they're going to capitalize their investments because every company, including Apple, which is probably one of the greatest in the world right now, still has to invest. And the CEO, Tim Cook, has a decision to make every year. How do I want to do this? And because their financials are so awesome and they got, you know, gobs and gobs of cash flow, he has different decisions to make than, you know, the CEO that's running PayPal, for example. And so I'm not trying to pick on PayPal, but their financial realities are different. They are. It's kind of going back to the hurdle rate, you know, at the risk of being like overly simplistic. Tim Cook or Satya Nadella or any of the CEOs who are reinvesting the cash flows that come from the business, if they can't beat the hurdle rate on any new projects, then they should be giving that back to shareholders. And that's where the hurdle rate or the whack not only becomes useful in valuation, but to your point, when the CEO is looking at how do I want to allocate the capital? And so that's why it's used a very good way to see if companies are managing, actually creating wealth for the shareholders Mm -hmm. through their reinvestments. Right. So I guess uh, to answer the question, do you include operating leases in the costs of debt? I do. I do. The Accounting gurus, the leaders of the accounting world, decreed a few years ago that operating leases needed to be included on the balance sheet as debt for the companies. And when I calculate the total debt of a company, I include operating leases. Some companies, operating leases are going to be a far bigger part of their debt than others. I'm looking at a company called Fastenal right now, and they have you know very large operating leases because of the nature of their business. And so they have a lot more debt, not a lot more debt, but if you look at the components of their debt, operating leases is a far bigger part of it than Microsoft, for example. Yep. I also, full disclosure, I don't calculate WAC. And that's because I calculate the cost of equity instead. And that's mm-hmm. because I'm looking at free cash flow, the equity instead of valuing the entire firm. However, when you talk about do I want to put operating lease in as debt or not, I also subscribe to that idea that you should. And also when you do it for invested capital. And this is something we've debated yes. you know, Many times. quite hard for a while. The mental model that helped me understand why this is the case, because really when company is going to I like to think of real estate as a good example. Like, if we're going to buy land to put our retail store on, 
Mm-hmm. Are we going to buy it or are we going to lease it? You buy it, then it's CapEx. Right. And then it goes on your balance sheet under long-term assets. If you lease it, it's not CapEx, but it's a finance lease. And mm-hmm. then, But now it also goes on your balance sheet. Mm-hmm. But if you think about the way companies actually do CapEx, I don't like, I'm not a CFO. I don't know exactly how this works as far as the in the trenches, nuts and bolts. But a lot of the CapEx is spread out over many years and you make payments on it in that way. And so whether you buy or you lease, you're still making payments. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you might argue, well, an operating lease is, is a way to free up capital because you're not owning it. And that was the right. way I thought about it for a while. But if you take that argument a little bit further, you're still basically locking up future cash flow that needs to be paid. And so it should be considered just like you're either paying the bank or you're paying the the landlord. The landlord, exactly. Thank you. Right. And so to me, that's then it should be included and it should be thought of as debt. Yeah, that's very well put. The best way to think about it is it needs to be included in the debt calculations when you're considering the cost of debt for a weighted average cost of capital because it, it does impact Again, it impacts the CEO's decisions on what he wants to do when he allocates capital. Yeah, you know, if I can go get eight percent return at a much lower risk than you know Microsoft investing and generating seven percent, then they should have given that to me as a dividend. Mm-hmm. Right. But luckily, they haven't done anything like that in a while. So no, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they haven't. But I think the bottom line is that's all part of analyzing management. Yeah, and how they allocate the capital. And that is job number one. Michael Mobison has said this repeatedly throughout his writings that, and Warren Buffett has said the same thing, that allocating capital is the number one job that all CEOs have. And the ones that really do it well are the companies that you really, really want to buy because that is the most important thing that they can do. And they're not just a figurehead. And if they don't do that well, and then that will impact the financial performance of the business in some way, shape, or form. Sometimes it could take a while because the company could be just that great that you know a dumb dumb can run it for a while, and it takes a while for those decisions to impact the returns of the business. But eventually, it will, and that's why it's so important to really understand this concept and as well as what management is doing with the money they generate. Yep. All right, everyone. Well, with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up the show for this week. Don't forget to subscribe to the show in your preferred podcast app if you enjoyed our little show. If you would, kindly consider giving us a review. It greatly helps our show. And don't forget to subscribe to the incredible materials we've created for you at einvestingforbeginners.com. Lastly, continue growing your knowledge as an Investing for Beginners insider with insights and educational trips delivered right to your inbox for free. Sign up today. And with that, we will go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on safety. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time... Have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.